a song like that and say that we normally sing it after the message, but I think it's the same sort of attitude that we should come to God's Word before the message. But the simple fact that when we see God's Word, uh, Jesus is described as the Word, and so there's not as harsh a separation between the two things, coming to Christ, coming to His Word, as sometimes we would uh, tend to think. If you're not already there, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Just a few short verses, but I think they give us an opportunity to review some of the things that we've looked at in this book. The first verse there, in addition to be a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Uh, Again, this goes back to some of the things that we were discussing regarding chapter 1. There is this idea, perhaps, that uh, Solomon sure said some of the things in the middle, but then a lot of the other comments were by a so-called frame narrator or just another, you know, third party who sort of added his perspective, either from the perspective of, well, Solomon kind of took an ungodly turn and I'm trying to correct it, or from the perspective of just someone coming along later and adding his two cents to what Solomon had said. And as I argued when we first started looking through this book, even if there is the possibility that Solomon frames it with different levels of sometimes speaking of himself in the first person, sometimes in the third person. I think we see some evidence of that in the book. It's still Solomon writing the book. And so I think it's important for us to remember that. It's not as though the whole part of the book has been, go your own way, here's man's wisdom, and then all of a sudden it's, now let's fix it, follow God and fear God. Solomon has spent a significant portion of this book dismantling. He's, he's gone and said, here's the things that you say are important. Money, health, power, wisdom, whatever. And he sort of kicks the supports out from, all, from under them and says, and they won't keep you from death, and they won't secure happiness in this life, and they won't bring you fulfillment apart from God. And so when he sums it up in verses 13 and 14, he's not saying something different than he said Earlier in the book, he's just bringing it all to a conclusion. There's further, I think, support for the idea that this was also Solomon who wrote. We saw from 1 Kings, we see from the book of Proverbs, that he did write. He did compile a number of Proverbs that we still have to this day. Verse 10, I think, is a good reminder for preachers and for all who would teach God's Word. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Those are the two uh, challenges for someone who would speak God's Word to others. To say it in a way that connects with people and is memorable, and to not let that goal of being interesting and memorable become more important than being true. It's really easy to get one or the other, but not both. There are a fair number of preachers who are preaching accurately and are a chore to listen to. And Solomon, I think, has a slight rebuke here and says, it should be delightful words. One of the commentaries I was looking at said it this way. He could have said, a group of people is likely to succeed. How did he say it? A strand of three cords is not easily broken. 
which one is more memorable? Which one is more thought-provoking? Which one gives you a picture? He could have said, if you chase after money, your life will fall apart and you won't be able to hang on to it. How did he put it? Seeking money is like striving after wind. That's really a good and a helpful picture of these sorts of things. But it's also important to be true. There are a fair number of preachers, Bible teachers, book authors, who write stuff that's interesting, funny, engaging, easy to listen to or read. But they start to stray pretty far afield from what the Bible says. Sometimes this is connected with their own experience. You've been hurt in some relationship, and so Jesus becomes the one who is seeking to meet your needs of feeling left out. Or, you feel like your life has been difficult, so Jesus is the one who comes alongside and says, you know what, people have oppressed you, I'm the one who frees you from oppression, not just spiritually, but politically. Or there's people who will say all manner of other things, and they say it in a really interesting way, but when you hold it up next to the Bible and you say, here's what they're saying, and here's what God says, you don't see the connection because it's not there. So as we look at God's Word, as we teach God's Word to one another, in the classroom setting, in service, or even just in our conversations with one another, we have opportunity to consider what God has said, try to speak it clearly, concisely, and memorably, but make sure that we're always saying what God has said. Two typical dangers with this. One is to do what Satan did. God said, don't eat from the tree because you will die. What did Satan say? You won't die. He took away from what God had said. What do the Pharisees do? They said, here's what God has said. Let's add this and this and this. What did they do? They added to what God has said. Revelation is very clear. Whoever adds to the words of this book will be added. The warnings, the plagues, the curses of this book. Whoever takes away from them is part will be taken away from the book of life. That should be a sober warning for us as we consider the truth of Scripture to say exactly what it says. And that's a challenge because we have to read it enough to think through and understand it. And we have to be willing to say it even when it convicts us. Which leads into verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Again, one of the things I was reading said that wise words sting our hearts and provide stability to our lives. I was working out in the garden, and I stabbed myself with two different things. One was my cactus and the other was a rose bush. God's Word is supposed to do that. Somebody says the truth from Scripture, and you, the Spirit convicts you, and you say, I have sinned. And if we never have that sting, that poke, that stirring up of our hearts, Something's wrong. 
wise words are like goads. Like the goad for the ox, they directed the right way. God's Word does the same thing for us. Here's the right way. There's a way that leads to destruction, and there's a way that leads to everlasting life. Follow the right path. And wise words, God's truth, keep pushing us along. We start to stray, and it's painful, but it pushes us back. And we need to be aware of that, experiencing that in our own lives, and using God's Word that way to other people. Not, man, He really got me good in the way that He just sort of phrased that and caught me off guard. Not that sort of a thing. But rather, here's what's true. And then we have to say, here's what God said. I need to follow it. Stability, this idea of well-driven nails. Um, you ever tried to hang something up and then it fell right off the wall again? Sometimes the drywall cracked or the hole got too big that the nail was in. Sometimes you were supposed to be putting it into a stud and you missed it entirely. God's Word provides stability to our lives. How do we know what's honoring to God? How do we stand secure when everything seems to be in disarray and chaos because of things beyond our control? The only thing that provides that sort of stability is knowing God's Word. What's the source of it? And this is really an important point. The source of it, they are given by one shepherd. And that is God. But when we say God, we should not think, well, it's God the Father because Jesus and the Holy Spirit didn't do anything in the Old Testament. God is and has always been three in one. And so the same God that spoke to His people then, the same God who spoke later to His people in the Gospels and through the Apostles, and we ought to heed that wisdom. Verse 12, Beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of books is endless, excessive devotion is wearying to the body. Solomon wrote Proverbs. He probably could have written more. We have a certain number that are preserved for us today. I've never written a book, but I know people who have. It is work. It is labor. It wears you out. And it seems that people don't stop writing them. You would think at some point that everything has been said that could be said on a particular subject, but people always write new books. There's a challenge for someone who's interested in books, even from the perspective of sometimes just you like how they look on the shelf. Um, I mean, I try to read them too, but there was a time when I was in seminary and they would say, well, this is a good book and this is a good book and this is a good book and this is a good book. And so at first I was like, well, I've got to buy all of them. And then you know what I found? I didn't use most of them. So then I became more selective about which books that I bought. But the pursuit of knowledge through books wears you out. It wears you out because at some point, especially the further removed they are from Scripture, the more work you have to do to get back to specifically what God has said. So perhaps the most practical books for a Christian in terms of spiritual growth are those that are saturated with Scripture. It's not to say we can't read other books. There are you know, other things that we could perhaps be interested in. Maybe you like 
westerns or mystery or science fiction or those sorts of things. And assuming those things meet godly criteria of uh, moral tone and, and all those sorts of things, then sure, go ahead and read them. But you can never um, read everything there is in the whole world. You can never have every book that there has been written. And we can never place our collections of books, good they, though they may be, above what God has said himself. That applies to practical devotional type books. That applies to commentaries. That applies to all sorts of things. We need scripture. Those other things can sometimes be helpful. They can put things in a way that sort of makes it, uh, sometimes helps us make connections that we didn't before. But if you have only one book to read, if you're going to read one book, it should be this book. Excessive devotion is wearying to the body probably has something to do with the words that he said earlier in, I believe it was chapter 7. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Sometimes we think that if we pursue knowledge, we'll be able to figure everything out, we'll have the answers to everything, or we will arrive at some sort of uh, just, I've got it. But that doesn't lie in books or in seeking answers on our own terms. We can't understand it all. We can't know it all. We have to trust God. And the things that we must know are things that teach us about Him and, and point us to Him. Verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments because this is for every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The two motivations that Solomon gives us in this book are joy and judgment. Why do I say joy? Because there's a number of times where he said, enjoy life with your job, your wife, your children, your food, all of these blessings that God has given to you, enjoy those things. And the way that we really and truly enjoy those things is not in those things for themselves. I don't love food because it's food. Even though it could be amazing, I don't love food because it's food. I love food because it's a good gift from God and it ought to point me to worship God more. I don't love my family because they are the ultimate focus of my life. Though I should willingly serve and sacrifice for them, I should love my family because God gave them to me. He's given them to me for a brief time, and I need to make the most of that. I should not love my work because it's the main point of my life. I should do my work well because it honors God, God gave it as a responsibility before sin entered into the world and the fulfillment that I find in it is because I am ultimately not working for myself or for the person whose name is above me on the organizational flowchart, I am working for God. So Solomon holds out the motivation of joy. 
So looking back through the book and thinking back through those things, do you enjoy food and family and hard work and the simple blessings of life in this earth? Knowing that they can be gone in a moment, knowing that you can be gone in a moment, knowing that it's all dependent on God's overseeing hand. Do you find joy in those things? You might say, well, I read through the book of Ecclesiastes and I don't really find joy. In fact, it's deeply discouraging. It's been said that our culture has no place for discouragement, despair, depression, whatever word you want to put with it. We immediately want to get rid of that feeling. But that feeling put to good use drives us to God. I can't. I'm lost. I need. I'm helpless. And if Ecclesiastes has done that to you and reminded you that we die, that we fail, that life is broken, and it points you to God, then it served its purpose. So remember that there is joy, but when you also remember that there is heartache and difficulty in this world, both things ought to point us to God. The joy, because God is the source of that joy, and the difficulty, because God is the only one who can help us in it, and God is the one who is working through it. So on the one hand, we have the motivation of joy. On the other hand, we have the motivation of judgment. I mentioned that in chapter 7. Do not be excessively wicked and do not uh, be a fool. Why should you die before your time? All of these examples of, the, of the, the wicked person who, there are exceptions, but there is a general trend that the wicked one finds punishment. And we know that even if the wicked person seems to escape every human authority and every, uh, every uh, legal thing that could be brought against them, God's not blind to it. But I think Ecclesiastes asks us, cause, should have caused us to ask this question, what if the wicked person is me? What sin do I love? What thing stands between me and God? God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And we think things and we say things and we do things when no one is watching and we think, I got away with that because no one saw me. God sees. God knows God will bring to account. Now, we know from other passages of Scripture that that does not mean that we will lose our salvation. It does not mean we will be cast out of God's presence if we genuinely and truly belong to Christ. But it does seem that there is a sense of shame, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, for those who took the gospel and built upon it with wrong motives and in a not-God-honoring way. Can God use people to accomplish His purpose who are not perfect? Yes. I think Balaam's donkey illustrates that for us very well. 
I think the fact that God used people who had flaws like David, like Solomon, like all of these others, God can use people who are imperfect. Sometimes I think we feel like um, if I'm going to heaven, it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus has kind of paid for it anyway and no one will ever find out and, you know, just thoughts along those sorts of lines. You say, I would never think that. I don't think we'd ever say it out loud, but I think the thought sometimes crosses our mind. And without denying the redemption, the forgiveness, the hope that we have in Christ, I think it is important for us to remember we see phrases like this in the New Testament. It is high time for judgment to begin, and if the righteous will barely escape, what hope is there for the godless and the sinner? So, there is a sense at which we should see a phrase like this, God will bring every act to judgment, and say, I ought to examine my life and say, what is there that does not honor God? I think... I think we could legitimately say that it is a higher motivation to be driven by joy. But at the very least, we ought to be motivated by the fact of God's judgment. I mean, I think the parallel holds true in a family context. You should do what your parents ask you to do that honors God because they will be pleased, you will be pleased, God will be pleased. But if you don't do it for that reason... Do it because there's consequences that follow if you don't. That's the sort of thing that I think Solomon is holding out to us here on this. And what does it mean to fear God? Again, sometimes we look at that phrase, fear God, and we immediately say, well, fear doesn't mean actually fear. It means just have respect for... There's a lot of examples in the Bible where people genuinely and rightly came before God's presence fearfully. He is a God who loves His people, but He's also God. We can come boldly, but not irreverently. We can come freely, but not flippantly. We can come before Him, but we must never forget who He is and who we are. We must fear God. And if we really, truly fear God, that leads to obedience. If I had to say what song in the hymnal sums up the Christian life, I wouldn't want to sing it every week because it would become repetitive, but trust and obey probably covers it pretty well. Know God. Believe what He said. He's spoken. He's given us His Word. Believe it. If you really believe it, then you will obey it. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I thought it was trust. Love and trust are very closely connected. Knowing God, fearing Him, loving Him are all wrapped up with each other and it produces obedience. And if there's not obedience, then there is a flaw in our love, trust, and knowledge of God. And if there is obedience, but not a devotion and a love, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, why don't I have that passion for God? And there's various possible answers. Sometimes it's sin clouding that joy. Sometimes it is never having repented of sin. And so we outwardly try to conform to what God has said, but we don't really know Him. And hopefully that's not the case for any of us, but it is a real and genuine possibility that we have to ask ourselves, if I 
do the things God has said, but I have no love for God, for his people, for his word, I may not know him. Solomon wraps up his book, and he says, Fear God and obey his commandments. Earlier, he's held out the motivation of joy. Now he holds out the motivation of judgment. Those things together ought to remind us of the path of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. Do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you possess the knowledge of the Holy One, not in an intellectual sort of sense, but in a real personal relationship that is progressing, that is increasing? That means when you face sin, you think about God. When you face good, you thank God for that good. Whatever comes up in your life, you look to God because He is your God and you know Him and you are following Him. So do you fear God and do you keep His commandments? It's not enough to do one without the other. Are both true in your life? If so, then you are walking on the course of wisdom that Solomon sets out that will not fix every problem in life. He doesn't answer all the questions he raises in the books, but he does say, look to God. He doesn't say everything is going to turn out with a sort of fairy tale kind of ending because in a world that is plagued by sin, there's a whole lot of Romans 8 creation groaning and not a whole lot of everything is exactly perfect the way it was in the Garden of Eden. There are glimpses of that, the joys that he mentions, but there's a lot of brokenness and heartache. But even in the midst of all those things, we look to God. Instead of being caught up by a pursuit of knowledge or a pursuit of riches or a pursuit of pleasure or all of the things that we often set up as idols in God's place, Solomon says, fear God and obey Him. So are you doing those two things? You can't do it apart from God's help. You don't have God's help unless you believed in His Son. John 3 says that very clearly. God sent His Son as the only way of eternal life. The one who does not believe in the Son is already condemned. God doesn't have to do anything more to ensure the judgment of those who have rejected His Son because they are already condemned by having rejected Christ. So the starting point for doing what Solomon is talking about here is turning to Jesus. And hopefully all of us in this room have done that turned from our sin, said, I am done living for me. I'm going to follow and fear God. I am done doing what I want. I'm going to obey God's commandments. If that is true in our life, we're on this course of wisdom. We're living the way that Solomon advises us to. And by God's grace, we will avoid a lot of the foolish mistakes that Solomon himself committed. He can be the wisest man on earth and still make a lot of foolish choices. And if he could do it, we can too. And so by God's grace, may we fear God, keep his commandments, fulfill the fundamental thing for which God made us to do to bring him glory so that we can stand confidently before him in the judgment and until that day live in the joy that he holds out before us in this life. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word together. I pray that you would help us to live it out. Easy for us to think about it maybe right here and right now. And then not really think about it two hours from now or two days from now or two months from now. Lord, help your truth sink into our hearts so that it affects our lives. I pray that all of us here tonight really know you in the way that Solomon is talking about, that we fear you and that we keep your commandments because that is what you created us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.